This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another global podcast that is Thought and Leaders. As you know, I scour this beautiful, magnificent, elegant planet of ours to find the most, as I said, inspirational, the most intriguing, the most insightful leaders in whatever field they may be from far and wide. And this week, I have the absolute privilege to reach across the Atlantic to a wonderful rabbi called Michael Paris. Is that how I pronounce it, by the way, Michael? Correct. Michael Paris, Rabbi Michael Paris. Aha. Uh-huh. So I got it right. So hello, Michael, and welcome to Fortin Leaders. Hi, Jonathan. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you today. So let's go back to you growing up as a kid in Cherry Hill. So where is Cherry Hill? Cherry Hill is located in southern New Jersey. Um, so I'm from New Jersey. I'm from the United States. Is it like a suburban place or something like that? What is it? It's a big, big Jewish community. In Cherry Hill, there must be 12 synagogues. I was very much immersed in Jewish community from a very young age. Is it like Williamsburg? It's a diverse Jewish community. I would say it's, it's a mix of reform, conservative, some orthodox. So when you think of Williamsburg or parts of Brooklyn, Crown Heights, those are very orthodox Hasidic communities. This is just your typical assimilated American Jewish community with a whole diversity of different types of Jews. You were growing up there. Maybe you are completely from, oh, by the way, uh, Rabbi, we've got people from all over the world listening. I'm going to be, and you, I'm sure, are going to be using this jargon. I think, what on earth is Jonathan going on about? Jonathan, I try not to speak Rabbi too much. I try to really explain everything thoroughly so nobody's left in the dark. Going back to that question then, Rabbi, from, which means religious, were you from a from family? Uh, My mother comes from a very conservative Jewish family in the Philadelphia area. Her family owned Jewish funeral homes, so well-known Jewish family in the Philadelphia area. But my father was an Italian Catholic from Camden. My parents were two completely different people from completely different worlds. And in, in many ways, when they got together, the worlds collide. Wow. Back then... A nice Jewish girl marrying an Italian Catholic was kind of taboo. (laughs) My father converted to Judaism, and the compromise was we were raised reform so that my father would feel comfortable. So my mom was raised a little more conservative on the Jewish spectrum, and I was raised a little more reform. So it would be kind of a meeting place so that my father would feel more involved, more connected. Got it. You had, as your own rabbi... Back in the day, Rabbi, I believe his name was Newlander. Yeah. He was quite charismatic. Amazingly charismatic. He was very much the center of our community. I remember from a very young age being in the sanctuary on Rosh Hashanah on Yom Kippur and hearing him give these magnificent sermons, very powerful, very dramatic. Uh, you were about eight, is that right, when things started to happen? I was probably around eight or nine when one day the news came that the rabbi's wife was murdered in a home invasion. Oh, my Lord. It was a tragic moment. The, the rabbi's wife was murdered. And, you know, as I said, my mother owned a funeral home. We did the funeral. You know, I, the rabbi was there. He was crying. He was despondent. Of course. Um, but it wasn't soon after that it came out the rabbi was wanted for questioning in his wife's murder. And from there, Jonathan, it just spiraled that the rabbi had hired two congregants. He was having an affair. I I mean, a true sociopath in in every sense of the word. Hold on. Let me just slow you down, rabbi. So you're saying... Yeah, please. I mean, because, you know, this is a bit like watching Netflix. Yeah. 
there were two congregants who this guy hired to murder his wife. And stage it as a home invasion. It's very surreal. And when you think about your synagogue, the images I have of a child are camera crews parked on the lawns of the synagogue because this became an international story in many ways. It was, for a 9, 10, 11-year-old, very confusing because I was taught to respect this man, to honor this man, and, and, and all of a sudden now you're telling me he, he's a murderer. Miles from the bustling streets of Philadelphia, Cherry Hill's a picture-perfect suburb. Peaceful, prosperous, and safe. Or it was, until a mysterious intruder... This guy knew that he was at the rabbi's house. It was a perfectly uh, set living room with, unfortunately, a, a murder victim laying on the floor. There's no way he's involved in this. A man of God. When the truth finally came out, it'd be even more shocking than the crime itself. If you were in the CIA, would you tell anybody? The person he wanted harmed was an enemy of Israel. And that was only the beginning. I was already feeling a little rebellious as a young Jewish kid. And when this happened, Jonathan, I was just kind of like, you know, these guys are fakes and phonies. I don't know if I believe in this God thing anyway. You know, why do I need to be Jewish? And, and you know, today I reflect on it thinking, had something of that magnitude happen in one of my communities where I have worked, the first thing we would do is sit down with the children and try to explain to them what had happened. No one ever did that for us. No one ever sat us down. So it it, it kind of became this thing that you nobody discussed yet couldn't be swept under the rug. And, and I remember being really, really just kind of off-put by the whole thing. Mm. And so a few years later, I had my bar mitzvah at 13, and, and I was pretty much done with it at that point. And I was a secular Jew, a non-practicing Jew from the ages of 13 to 24. You know, the only time I would go to synagogue was to take my grandmother on the high holy days. And, you know, we would celebrate Passover. But for the most part, I wasn't actively Jewish. Now, that's not to say I didn't see myself as a Jew. You can't escape being Jewish. It's more than a religion. It's a community. It's a culture. It's an ethnicity. But I wasn't actively engaged in the Jewish community for a long time because of that. Mm. You know, anybody in a position of power, whether it's a religious leader, a CEO, a politician, is susceptible to being morally bankrupt and morally corrupt. And that's why trust makes up the foundation of the work that we do as public servants. And I take that trust very, very seriously. So yes, I was biased as as a young child thinking, oh, this doesn't happen in Jewish communities. Rabbis don't do this. But now, you know, we know much better. I know much better. I've heard stories, Rabbi, of very, and I'm going to explain myself to the listeners, dati, well, actually you do it, Rabbi, dati means? Religious. So in, in Israel... That's the, the, the phrase, you know, Israel is an interesting society because it's really divided into two sections, Dati and Chiluni, meaning half are, consider themselves religious and half consider themselves secular. Not secular in the way in, we use it in the West. They mean more, they just, they're not orthodox because orthodoxy is very much the, the prominent Jewish worldview in Israel, where in America, orthodox is the minority observance. I heard some stories of, of one or two rabbis in Israel who were very respected, very dutty, very firm. But things happen, allegedly, and the community sent them somewhere else and just didn't talk about it in the hush-hush. There's a danger in communities where leaders have no checks and no balances. And in many communities, you know, not just Jewish, but Christian, Muslim, there are leaders who are central to the community. And and I think the lay leadership doesn't have a good check and balance on authority. So everywhere is different. But I think there's always a danger when we raise up spiritual leaders, treat them like holier than the rest of us. I think there's a danger in that. At the time of recording, the world news is about the Taliban. 
20 years, America, United Kingdom, and so on and so forth, we were all out there to help the poor people of Afghanistan. And within two weeks, the Taliban stepped back up again. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's a total tragedy to all the people concerned. The blood and treasure spent, the promises made, and then in two weeks, the thing, 20 years work just means nothing. It's, it's, it's a tragedy that I think that is just so surreal that for us who grew up kind of in that age post 9-11, it, it makes you wonder what were we thinking and what did we do? It's horrible. Do you think that the world is getting much more extreme? For example, in Israel, you've got half religious, half not religious. Then you've got in the United States, you've got evangelists who are very extreme, some of them. I see a world that is kind of grasping for stability. And when that stability isn't found, people kind of are easily swayed by radical and extremist thinking. And I, see, I think we see that all around the world today. You are a young rabbi. Mind you, that said, Rabbi, anyone compared to me is young, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't feel it every day, but thank you. Okay, okay. When it comes to the millennials and when it comes to Generation Z, okay, or Z, as you would say, at that side of the Atlantic, it is easy for them to get very disillusioned with their leader. When you were working for your family business, you were in your mid-20s, and as you said, it was a, uh, a funeral business, an undertaker's business, we say here. Something happened to you whilst you were think feeling very disillusioned with leaders that kind of changed things. Well, first off, let me say that I think authenticity is really important to the younger generations. While I think us older folk, if, we, if I'm speaking relatively as a person in my 30s now. Don't ask how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, Jonathan. It's all relative. I think these younger generations, they can sense inauthenticity where maybe we kind of put up with it for, for the sake of the status quo for far too long. Uh, I think they see the world kind of the way it is and go, why be anything other than being really, really honest. So that's one thing. But let me get to your question. I was a secular Jew from the ages of 13 to 24. Right. I was working at the, my family's funeral home, which is something I never wanted to do because... I can imagine. Well, for, for many reasons. One, it's a family business. Family businesses are very hard, but it does a very noble and admirable work. Of course. I have immense respect for what my mother does, my brother, my cousins, everybody is involved in this funeral business. But it was a blessing in disguise for me, even though I didn't want to be a funeral director. I'll tell you why, because it allowed me for the first time in my life up until that point to really kind of realize that I had a lot of baggage towards rabbis and my faith. So... Those years spent working at the funeral home that I was able to work with rabbis for the first time, and I got to see them do this really pastoral work, helping people in a way that I had not previously saw in many years. And so that was like a very revelatory moment for me, seeing rabbis again, seeing them do this kind of amazing work, helping people in their time of need. And that really started the ball rolling of me not thinking I'm going to be a rabbi, because if there was a list of things I thought I would never be, it would be NFL player followed by rabbi. Huh. But it really allowed me to think, oh, Maybe I could be a Jew again. Maybe I was too quick to judge. Maybe I was too young to fully understand all the things that had happened in my youth. So I started kind of exploring my Judaism. And I'll never forget, it was December 2012. It had just snowed really badly on the east coast of, of the United States. Um, it must have been two feet of snow. And most of the funerals were canceled that week, but there was one funeral that remained. A gentleman in his like mid-90s had died, and it was at one of these very old cemeteries in Philadelphia. And if I'm trying to paint a picture for the audience, these cemeteries, these older cemeteries, the monuments, the tombstones are so close together, you could barely walk through them. Add snow to the mix, it's almost impossible to transverse the territory. Okay. So we're there for this gentleman's funeral, and he has one living sibling, a, a sister who must also be in her like early 90s. But there's a problem. 
the sisters in a wheelchair, and they couldn't get the wheelchair to the graveside. And so the decision was made that the sister had to sit in the car for her own brother's funeral. Now, in retrospect, looking back at that, I realized, bad situation, nobody's at fault. But then I was just so livid. I was so angry. I thought, what an injustice that this woman won't be able to be at the graveside for her own brother's funeral. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the funeral starts, and I see this woman just sitting in the car. And, you know, I don't know why I did this, but I I went up and I knocked on the window and I said, ma'am, my name's Michael. I'm from the funeral home. Can I come and sit with you? And she kind of like motioned me into the car. And I'm sitting in the back seat with this woman who I've never met. And she's just kind of staring, you know, out the window towards the graveside. And I said, ma'am, would you tell me, you know, something about your brother? And she looked at me and it was almost like she was waiting to talk about her brother. She started telling me all these stories about how they escaped the Nazis, how he saved her life, how they walked across Europe. For the first time in my life, and this is, you know, I'm 25 at this point, it was the first time I realized that I had not spoken in a conversation. Like, imagine that kind of revelation where you realize that you've never really listened to someone in a conversation. But that's what I was doing. I was just really listening to this woman. Mm -hmm. And the service was wrapping up. And to this day, I don't know why I did it because, you know, I said I was not really that religious. I didn't know many prayers. But I said, ma'am, would you like to say a prayer with me? I only knew one prayer, and it's a prayer in Judaism called the Mourner's Kaddish. Right. It's typically associated with the graveside. You know, we say it for people on the anniversaries of their death or at the graveside of a funeral. And we said this prayer together, and the look on her face after we were done, it was like I had just given her the best gift anybody could ever give anyone. Beautiful. And I stepped out of the car, Jonathan, and I was like, what just happened? What did I just do? And how do I always do that? And so I was telling someone this story and they said, well, have you ever thought about being a rabbi? And I said, are you nuts? I can't be a rabbi. Huh. Well, they go, you, you might be able to be a rabbi. Why don't you go speak to this person at, at you know, there was a rabbinical college in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I went and, you know, they said, you could be a rabbi, but your Hebrew is nowhere where it needs to be. Right. So I had to spend the next year in Israel kind of learning and immersing myself in, in Hebrew just to get accepted into the rabbinical program. Fantastic. Yeah. Specialist speakers make your next event. Fascinating. Authentic. Entertaining. Insightful. Refreshingly honest. Totally compelling. Contact specialistspeakers.com. My uncle, right? Yeah. He used to say to me that to do tzedakah, again, over to you, Rabbi, to explain what the word tzedakah is. <laughs> tzedakah is not an easily translated word. Many people translate it as charity. Yeah. Um, that's the most common usage, but being very rabbinic, it's almost like being righteous in the world, doing a righteous deed Yeah. in the form of charitable giving. Uncle used to say to me, you don't have to be part of an organization to do the right thing. There's the uh, Freemasons who do a lot of great things. He said, you don't have to join the Freemasons to do right. So, Rabbi, I'm asking you, why did you have to become a rabbi to do the right thing? Being a rabbi opened my world up in, in ways I never could have expected. It took six years of seminary, six years of rabbinical school to become a rabbi. The learning, not just like textually, not just theologically or philosophically, the learning you do for yourself, you know, learning how to be a a chaplain, a pastoral presence, learning how to be with people in the hardest moments of their lives, it, it made me the person I always wanted to be. So why didn't you become a psychologist then? That That's a great question. You know, I studied politics. I wanted to be involved in politics. I wanted to be a public servant. But my whole life, I felt like no matter what I did, I was always battling against the wave. My cup had no bottom, and no matter what I poured into my glass, it would all come out the bottom. But when I started to explore my Judaism and study rabbinic, learn what it takes to be a spiritual leader, I felt like I became this complete version of myself. And it was truly beautiful, and I think it's just we all have a path. 
We all have a, a, a role to play in this world. Mine is as rabbi, but that doesn't mean someone who's not a psychologist or social worker or politician doesn't have an equally as important path. Mm. This was just the path that really, for the first time, made sense to me, and it allowed me to do the amazing work in the world that I always wanted to do, just never knew how. There would be some people who say that to be a rabbi, right, specifically to choose that path that you've chosen, is something that you never stop learning. I mean, till you literally die. The best teachers are eternal students. Absolutely. But the thing is, is that if you're going to be learning Talmud, Midrash, and all these sorts of things, unless you're going to really stick to the letter of the books, yeah. you can't really be a rabbi. I disagree with that. And I'll tell you why, Jonathan. What I've learned about Judaism from being kind of immersed in Jewish history and Jewish texts is that Judaism as a project has always been evolving. What the ancient Israelites did is not what we do today. And I believe the Torah, which is our central document, lends itself to being reinterpreted in every generation. Every generation must reread the Torah for their own time. And I think when we think of the letter of the law, we think of a very literal expression of religion, of, of text. And I think there's deep, deep truth to the Torah, to the Tanakh, to all these texts, whether we take them literal or not. So every rabbi is different, but I think we have to really kind of be aware that there is so much truth in the philosophy, in the history, in the theology, not just in the law of Judaism. You know, halakha does play a central guide for how we can live our lives, but I think it's only one part. The word halakha for people, Rabbi. Halakha means it's easily translatable thinking of it as like the legal guide to how to be a Jew. This legal guide on how to be a Jew, right, would be given yeah. by rabbis. Yeah. So you get people like the great Rashi, you get people like Maimonides, and it goes on and on and on. You're saying, though, what they prescribed yep. was okay for their time but not for our time because a lot of people say, as a rabbi, yep. you should be saying we're going to follow what this guy 300, 400, 200, 100 years ago said. Mm -hmm. But you're saying, no, we don't have to follow what he said. Well, I, I'm saying that it's nuance, right? There is great value in the thousands of years of Jewish knowledge, and it's for us to kind of take into our lives and use to find our agency in Judaism. You know, Maimonides was an amazing philosopher, and if you read Guide to the Perplexed— yep. It would almost sense that this guy is, is not the guy who would also be writing this very strict halachic codex, the Mishnah Torah. Absolutely. The truth is that the rabbis, when we say the rabbis, by the way, we're talking about the Talmudic sages, the, the Mishnah period, the Gemara. Well, how long ago was that for people so that they would know? thousand years ago. All right, go on then. You have to remember that even in their time, they were retrospectively looking back at the Torah, which is was in the biblical period, yeah. trying to make sense of it. That's how you look at something like mm. you shouldn't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Yeah. And that's how we get you shouldn't mix meat and milk together. You know, that was their interpretation of that verse of scripture. Right. So the rabbis, and I think in many brilliant ways, felt like, wow, the Torah was a great starting point, but we have to expand it, which is what we call the oral tradition, as opposed to the written tradition. Yeah. Listen, Judaism is very complicated. It spans millennia. And I think sometimes we don't always feel as Jews agency in our Judaism. We think we always have to be doing what was done before us. Right. While tradition is very important to me, so is finding one's own agency and how to be Jewish. It doesn't mean you totally skew from the path. It means you have agency to look at these texts and interpret them in a way that feels right for our modern sensibilities. You um, studied at a Reconstructionist rabbinical college in, I think it's called Wincott? Yeah, Wincott, PA. I've never heard of Reconstructionist. What, what is that? Reconstructionism was founded by a rabbi named Mordechai Kaplan, a genius in the Jewish world. He was a, originally an Orthodox rabbi who became more immersed in the conservative world. 
And his kind of thinking was, as I just kind of espoused, was that Judaism needs to evolve with the Jewish people. He was taking a very post-enlightenment view of Judaism. He kind of thought to himself for science and, and mathematics, for all that to kind of go hand in hand with Judaism, we kind of had to evolve our thinking. His great contribution to Judaism was that we live in two civilizations in the West. We live in the Jewish civilization and we live in the Western civilization. And it's okay to mix those together. You know, the more orthodox from communities, Haredi communities, try to resist assimilation. They try to resist the Western kind of culture. I believe there is a proper way to mix them together. Right. But it's a balance. It's a balance. Mm. I know a guy who's very respected. He's a rabbi uh, in Israel. And I had a big argument with him, or an expostulation, I'd like to say, which is a friendly argument. He said to me, Jonathan, the dinosaurs didn't exist. Basically, to summarize his argument, science is always changing its mind. Carbon dating is always changing its mind. But the Torah never changes its mind. So therefore, dinosaurs never existed and other things didn't exist. From his point of view, if you were to argue against that, you are arguing against God. You are saying that you don't believe in perfect faith. I absolutely fundamentally reject that way of thinking. Absolutely, completely reject that way of thinking. How should I have argued with him then? You might have found no matter how you argued, your argument was kind of fruitless to him. He's someone who obviously sees the world a very certain way. And I think that that is not the way that most Jews, even most rabbis or of the great sages saw the world. I, I think they saw that the Torah had a deep truth, even if it wasn't literally true, it holds a deep truth for our lives. You know, science to me goes hand in hand with faith. Mm -hmm. What do I mean when I say that? Well, I believe in God, but I believe God made us seek, grow, and learn from beyond in the universe to kind of seek out beyond, but has made us also kind of look inward to seek, grow, and learn, and that's the soul. So I think they kind of go hand in hand. Science and faith to me, are two sides of the same coin. One is how do we understand ourselves, and one is how do we understand the world. But I absolutely don't believe that the God of the Torah was always meant to be taken literally. These are stories that have deep, deep truths, but aren't necessarily literal expressions of history. But there are so many religious people out there who would say that you're a heretic yeah. because you're saying, <laughs> just by saying that this stuff can be reinterpreted, who are you to reinterpret God? I think that is, is very childlike thinking. I think that if we try to reject science, we do a disservice to ourselves and who we are as a Jewish community. So, you know, I probably would not be in the Beit Midrash in the library studying texts with the people you just mentioned, and that's okay. You know what? Judaism is diverse. There is no set dogma. We don't have a pope. We're a different type of religion. The way we do things and, you know, this is how I view the world. This is how I view Judaism. Yeah, and that's the old saying, right? You know, two Jews, three opinions. A hundred percent. Sometimes we're going to agree. Sometimes we're going to disagree. But those disagreements are fundamental to being Jewish. Because if you look at the Talmud, the Talmud is a book of different rabbis arguing different disagreements about the law. Now, we take the majority opinion of where we follow them, but just the fact that we wrote down the opinions of dissenting rabbis yeah. tells you that what we call the machloket, the disagreement, is crucial to what it means to be a thoughtful, intellectual Jew. You're talking about the idea that we don't have a pope and that we don't follow dogma. Yeah. Earlier in the year when COVID was still pretty rife, there were stories coming out from the very, very religious parts of Israel yeah. where you had hundreds, in one case, you had thousands of people all together to visit the grave of a highly respected rabbi. 
That's pretty dogmatic, isn't it? Even in the Orthodox world, there is a very diverse spectrum, right? There's modern Orthodoxy, there is Chabad, Hasidic rabbis, and then there's what we call the ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jews. That's just one type of way of being Jewish. In America, and maybe this is our American sensibilities, our culture, our our nation plays into what type of religion we ascribe to and how. So, you know, to me, Judaism has always looked diverse. It's always had a multiplicity of views. And to say one is right and one is wrong, I think really, really misses the point really misses the point. But Rabbi, you can't have everybody being right, and you can't have everyone being wrong. This is a bigger question. It's very relevant to our times. What is right? What is wrong? This is what everyone's asking themselves. Being right, you know, you know, I often call people who want to be right, right fighters. And I often say to them, well, are you happy? Are you a good person? You know, being right is not everything. And being right is very subjective. What is right to one person is wrong to another. At the time of recording this, there was a, a very tragic incident in the United Kingdom. And it was about almost a cultish movement of young men in their 20s. This guy, he shot five people because he associated himself with a group which was about young men who feel threatened by women, threatened by homosexuals. The incel community. Yeah, the incel community. Yeah. And he would say that this is the right way to live. And, you know, that's why I'm saying what you're saying has very big implications, much wider than even Judaism. Sure. If you're a young man, if you're a Generation Z, or you're a millennial, and people are saying, no, that's the right way to live, and the other guy says, no, this is the right way to live, wow, we're a very confused world. Yeah. That might be the issue of our time, right? Where my Judaism plays into how I answer this question is humility. Be humble. Be a good person. You know, recognize that we can learn from everyone. You know, who is wise, our tradition says? Well, the person who learns from everyone. You know, I think we live in times where everybody needs to be right. So true. To prove a point, and everybody's so unhappy. Mm-hmm. It's a tragic way of thinking about the world, this right and wrong. Whatever happened to just wanting to be a good person, a thoughtful person, always growing, always learning, not judging, these are the principles that my Jewish faith instill in me. And I think they're values that are, you know, instilled in many people in many cultures. I think we tend to focus on the more extremes. That's kind of what gets into the media. I can't say if that's a very small minority or a growth minority of people, but it is scary yeah. because it, it speaks to a change, a fundamental change in our culture where people are not feeling supported or not getting supported in the right ways uh, and are kind of being led down very dark paths where it, they're easily corrupted by thinking that is, quite frankly, very toxic, very warped, and very dangerous. You're saying that science and religion can work together. Now, you, very sadly, were involved with an accident. Yeah, yeah. What happened to you? Very, very sad. I was driving home from university, and I was stopped at a red light, and it was kind of at the bottom of a hill. And the person who was coming down the hill, probably at 30, 40 miles an hour, was texting on their phone, 
and I literally in my rearview mirror saw them on their phone at a very high speed about to crash into me. So I watched it happen, and because I watched it happen, I tensed up. My whole body, I I very much tensed my whole body. The doctor said later on to me, people who tense up their bodies, the injuries are always way more severe. And I was hit. I had whiplash. I had a lot of shoulder issues. But my main issue was a dislocated disc in my lower back that was causing sciatic nerve pain down my right leg. And so I was in just horrible pain every night. It felt like somebody was ripping apart the muscle in my leg. And I lived in an apartment building at the time. I had to walk up and down the flights of steps just to get the pain to stop. So I was like, this is insanity. I can't live like this. And that's when I went to the doctor. This was 10 years ago. We don't know what we know today. Maybe if it was today, you know, they would have given me physical therapy, steroid injections. But the first thing they gave me was pain medicine, opiates. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody... I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. Almost right away, I realized that I couldn't stop taking them. But more than that, my pain kept on intensifying. And I didn't know it at the time. But it was because when you take opiates, when you take pain medication, it doesn't solve the pain. It only masks it. And when you're coming down off of them, the pain just gets really, really severe. So here I was in legitimate pain, taking these pain medications and feeling like they're not working. I need more. And I go to the doctor and I say, you know, these things aren't working. I need a higher dose. So the doctor gives me a higher dose. Go back, it's the same kind of thing. I go back a third time. I say the pain is getting worse. I can't live like this. Gives me a higher dose. And now I'm at such a high dose, really couldn't stop even if I wanted to. I finally go back a fourth time and this doctor's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're taking way, way too much. You know, we really need to pull back. But it was already too late. Now, an important message from our friends. The Jordan Legacy. This year, there has been a 40% increase in the number of adults thinking about harming themselves or feeling suicidal. Somewhere in the world, one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds. 75% of these will be men. During the past 12 months, 200 school children took their own lives. Most suicides are preventable. Will you support our mission to make deaths by suicide rare events? Discover more. Visit thejordanlegacy.com Is it true that you had to go even higher than opiates? The way an opiate addiction works, when you're getting it from your doctors, you do what's called doctor shopping. You start going to different doctors, getting different prescriptions. Mm. And this created a, a very scary situation where I was taking large amounts of opiates every day just to sustain a very, very real addiction. So my if you want to call it drug of choice, though I didn't see it as like a drug kind of usage at the time because I thought, oh, I'm getting these from doctors. And even though I was going to different doctors, it felt still on the level. You know, I wasn't looking to get high. I wasn't buying drugs on the street, but that all changed. At some point, you hit a wall. You've told every lie you can tell. You've borrowed every dollar you can borrow. You can't get anymore. Then you go into withdrawal. Opiate withdrawal is a hell and a torture unlike anything I would ever wish on anyone ever. When you are in withdrawal from these medications, Jonathan, seconds seem to last for minutes, minutes seem to last for hours, and hours seem to last for an eternity. 
I went through withdrawal once early on in my usage of these medications, but I said, I'm never going to do that again. So when I couldn't go to the doctors, I started then going to friends, people, anybody who had these medications. By the time I had what I call my great final withdrawal, I was taking about 100 milligrams of OxyContin every day. One day I ran out, and as I said, you hit a wall, you can't get any more, and I was desperate, and I was going into withdrawal, and I was really upset, and you know, as I described to you earlier in this interview, I was not a person of faith at this time in my life. I was very angry with God, and I remember, you know, kind of cursing at God, like, why are you doing this to me? I'm not a bad person. Why me? I don't deserve this. And I called up a friend of mine who is no longer alive. And I said to that friend, I said, I'm in a very bad way. I I need help. I need you to bring me something, anything. I just need, you know, I need something. I need this pain to go away. Showed up about an hour later. Friend comes over, says, here you go. Drop something off and leaves. Walk inside, shut the door behind me. And it's not opiates. It's heroin. And I had never done heroin before. And it was a very surreal moment because I'm looking down at this bag of heroin and it's got the Hulk on it, you know, like the Marvel character, the Hulk. And it's just like this very surreal moment. And I'm kind of walking towards my bathroom. I feel like I'm dying. I feel like my skin is just like coming off my body. It's just so painful. And I'm in my bathroom and I'm looking down at this bag of heroin and in a moment that is really hard to describe, and I and I kind of resisted talking about it for years because I didn't think anybody would really understand, and I didn't truly understand it. I had this kind of moment of calmness, this moment of clarity come over me. And imagine, one minute you're just writhing in pain, and the next minute I'm saying pure calmness. And I was able to see that if I, if I did this, If I went down this path, I saw it, I would die. I just knew it. I knew if I did this, I was going to die. And at the time, what felt like truly the stupidest thing I could have done, because this would have taken away my pain in the short term, I flushed the drugs down the toilet. I called my family. I said, I'm in a very, very bad way. And the next day, I was able to to get help. Truly a life-altering moment. And it saved my life. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, if we look at the years from 2018 to 2019, we're looking at, wow, 500,000 people dying from an overdose involved with opioids. Yeah, 93,000 just this year in America. And this goes back, Rabbi, to what we were talking about earlier, which is trusting in authorities, in leaders, in religions, in scientists, in pharmaceuticals. You get to the point, who the hell do you trust? We obviously know today that many of the pharmaceutical companies lied and said that these weren't addictive medications. They pushed them onto the doctors. Now, I am sympathetic for some doctors. Some doctors, like my doctor, just didn't want to see his patient in pain. Other doctors, as we know, were a little more malicious. They were a little more greedy. They just wanted money, and they prescribed them these medications to anyone and everyone. It's horrible that we don't always know who to trust. That's why I did what I did when I shared my story, because I believe trust between not just people, but as a rabbi in my congregation is paramount. Mm. And I believe that when we trust in people and we bring our full authentic selves to them, we elevate ourselves. Absolutely. And I said to my congregation, Jonathan, when I told them this story, and it was it was a very big deal kind of coming out, if you will, telling this story. Mm. But I said, Jonathan, I said, every day you all share with me the deepest, most vulnerable parts of your lives. Yeah, of course. How can I not trust you all the way you have trusted me? I did not choose this. I wasn't looking to get high. I wasn't looking to do drugs. This was innocent and tragic. It could happen to anyone. It does happen to anyone. And it happened to a rabbi. 
And so it was a very important moment, 10 years in recovery to finally say that I had went through this experience. Many people are going through this and we have to stop lying. We have to stop saying this doesn't happen to people who are in positions of authority or professionals. This can happen to anyone. And when we change that stigma, that stigma of who gets addicted, who is an addict, who is involved in substance abuse disorder, then we can finally get people the treatment they deserve and we can save a lot, a lot of lives. Please, God. Now, we are around the period of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and uh, Yom Kippur. Do you think that this message has a significance looking forward to this year that's coming up and also looking back on the covid time as well of trust and authenticity in so many ways because i mean there's a lot of people even now who still don't trust the vaccine people don't trust other types of leaders we're a divided world divided into camps divided into tribes not only have we stopped listening to one another the way we talk to one another with the hostility with the anger, with the hatred, has led us into a situation where we are blinding ourselves to despite our face, right? We are in a situation now where we are just with such vitriol, you know, yelling at people who disagree with us. The Twitterati. Yes, but more than that, all of social media, right? I believe that you should wear a mask. For the sake of others, I 100% believe that you should get vaccinated for the collective well being. But to tell someone who disagrees with me that you deserve to die, your children deserve to die, how does that move that person to my position? Mm. Or looking at it from the other perspective, someone who is what we call anti-vaxxer, telling people who get the vaccine that you're sheep, that you're like Nazis, that you're just enabling the government to murder me and my family. How is that moving that person to understand why you are hesitant to take this vaccine? We've gotten to a place where we do not stop and listen to each other. It's a lack of humility. It goes back to this feeling that we know what's right. Hmm. In Judaism, we think about freedom to versus freedom from. I think the great Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the Lord Rabbi in the United Kingdom, said that in our Western culture, we think of ourselves as free from things, free from government, oppression, free from other people. But in Judaism, we think of ourselves as free to, free to worship the way we want, free to helping people, free to collective responsibility. You know, we are living in a free society and that is getting harder. What are the boundaries of that freedom? To me, we are free so that we can have collective responsibility, so that we can help other peoples. You know, liberty without that is just anarchy. And, and I think we really have to be careful going down that path. But we really have to also be careful about how we treat people who disagree with us, because that surely will not help our cause. Oh, beautifully put, Rabbi. You mentioned uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who we lost relatively recently. I once listened to him speak, and he said this. This was at the time when Satnav was just coming into vogue. And he said, the great thing about Judaism, the great thing about any religion and God, is this, is that you can head towards a direction, know where you're going to, and if you don't follow the path, don't worry, because the satnav, because God, mm. one way or another, will find you another way there. You can choose your path, but he's behind you all the way. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And it's so true. You were saying it's a very complicated religion because you've got conservative, you've got this, you've got that, and all the rest of it. It doesn't matter how you get there. It just matters that you get there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let me just say, Rabbi Sachs is such an inspiration to me, such a profound, thoughtful, kind, what we just sum up in Judaism as a mensch, right? Yeah, right. Someone who had a very true faith, a true faith in God, but not one that was 
forcibly trying to oppress others or even oneself, but to to have faith that there is a common good, that there is a common purpose, and that if we are good people, if we are guided by our traditions and our values, we will be a society that is worth saving. Such a beautiful notion. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Now, Rabbi, where can people find out more about you, your congregation? You know, if you go on Instagram, my handle's Rabbi Michael Paris. I'm just going to spell that for people. P-E-R-I-C-E. Very important. Yeah, go on. Thank you. I'm starting to do a lot of public speaking. People can find me, contact me at Rabbi Paris, R-A-B-B-I-P-E-R-I-C-E, all one word, at templesinai.nj.com. T-E-M-P-L-E-S-I-N-A-I-N-J.com. Rabbi Paris at templesinai.nj.com. I always say if, if you want to reach out for anything just to connect, feel free to shoot me an email. Jonathan, thank you so much for having me on. Fantastic. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. These are important conversations and, and I'm looking forward to hearing many more in, in the year to come. Please, God. And you have got an open invitation from this side of the pond. Come over and share, because I think what you say is, as I said in the very beginning, and I told you this would happen, everyone, this guy is absolutely, totally, emphatically inspirational. Thank you. With that in mind, I say, hug some mer. Look after yourself. Believe in yourself, believe in your God, and together we are one. Amen. Shalom. Peace to you all. Leaders is a goodbye production. It is heard around the world, but we can't continue broadcasting without your support. If you are interested in sponsoring the show or are looking for award-winning content, including strategy and coaching, please DM us or email reinvent at me.com. That's reinvent at me.com. Oh, no. oh,